Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we're taking a look at the book of Genesis, which takes us back to our origins and answers the question, how did we get here? But maybe not in the ways you might expect. It's a story told through the eyes of men and women who are just trying to figure out why the world is the way it is. Men and women who loved and quarreled, believed and doubted, failed countless times, and yet fell into God's grace every time. By examining their stories, we find ourselves living variations of the same story, one of faith and doubt, failure and grace. By going back to their stories, we see that God has always been faithful, even from the very beginning. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Hey, I want to tell you about an exciting weekend next weekend. We have a guest preacher coming by the name of David Bailey. David is the founder and CEO of an organization called uh, Arabon. Arabon comes alongside coaches around the world, alongside churches around the world, and coaches them in seeking God's kingdom in the pursuit of racial unity. David is an amazing preacher, and he'll have a word to share even rooted in Genesis this next week. So we want to invite you back uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and uh, come and fellowship together, hear the word of God from David Bailey. This, uh, well, spontaneous moment here, um, I, I want to actually read some of our scripture passage first. We don't have slides for it. Um, I just have this kind of voice echoing in my head uh, from the Apostle Paul about don't neglect reading scripture in the public assembly. So I actually want to read a part of the story we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll dive in. So please listen as I read from Genesis chapter 24. Then the servant left, and the servant, by the way, is unnamed. We don't know from this story the servant's name. He left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town, and it was toward evening, the time when the women go out and draw water. Then the servant prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful in, uh, today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The woman was very beautiful a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough 
ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all ten camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made this journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out the golden nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night tonight? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, praise to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness or faithfulness to his master, to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The word of the Lord. Uh, this past week, I came across a story on the internet. So true or not, I don't know. It's the story of a woman who at the age of 34 and due to a medical misdiagnosis went blind. And it was a traumatic uh, experience, a number of weeks, just losing her eyesight. Well, her husband, Mark, who was an officer in the Air Force, he loved her and he decided that we're gonna get through this, we're gonna walk through this together and we're going to learn the new normal. And so she learned how to walk around their house after several months. Um, it was, she decided it was time to go back to work. And so every day, Mark would drive his wife to work. They'd uh, learn the steps up to the office building, walk her into the office, and then he'd drive across town to the Air Force Base where he worked. And then at the end of the day, he'd drive back, pick her up, and they'd go home. This went on, again, for several months, uh, but they decided, and they're actually getting weary from all of the time and effort invested in that, they decided that for Susan, it was time for her to learn to go to work by riding the bus. And so, a couple of weeks, they spent time together. Every morning, Mark would walk Susan out to the bus stop. They'd, uh, you know, learn the distance to the street. They'd learn how to talk to the bus driver. Susan would learn to navigate the aisles and the seats. And uh, finally, the morning came, a Monday morning, when she would, for the first time, alone, go to work by herself, and she felt utterly, utterly alone. In our Genesis story today, we're hearing about a servant who was tasked by his master Abraham to take, if you will, a Monday morning journey, 400-mile trip uh, uh, to the northeast in Mesopotamia, took two weeks, taking 10 camels, and uh, he had this impossible task. He was tasked to bring and find a, a young wife for his uh, master's 40-year-old son and move 400 miles away, leave her family, and come marry a man she'd never before seen. That sounds like a tough one. Some of us this morning are facing a Monday morning journey tomorrow. Some of us in this room will be going to that first trip or maybe again first trip to AA tomorrow. Some of us here at Waterstone will be having an appointment with an attorney. Some of us will this week spend a night or two in the hospital. Some of us 
in this room will wake up again on a Monday morning as the only one in an empty house. Some of us will again try to hit that uh, hard, laborious job of finding a job and again fill out resumes and spend all the waking hours trying to find a job. the, The question is, as you feel alone on a Monday morning, are you? Are you alone? Well, that first Monday morning, Susan got on the bus by herself, made it to work, and and then home again. And she did it the rest of the week. And on Friday morning, as the bus driver was about to drop her off at the office building, the uh, bus driver said to Susan, hey, ma'am, you are one lucky woman. And first she said, are you talking to me? And then she said, what do you mean? And he said, well, every day that I've dropped you off, there's been a man standing across the intersection dressed in a military uniform. And he watches you to make sure you cross the street. He watches your every step. And then when you're into the building, he blows a kiss and he salutes. You are one lucky woman. I wonder this Monday morning on your journey, will you understand that you are not alone. As we approach our story, Genesis 24, I want to make three brief comments. First, this is a story, and we are preaching the stories of Genesis. Do you know that the Bible, our holy book, is 70% stories? Have you ever thought about why? And by the way, that's unlike any other holy book for any other religion, to be 70% stories. Why? Well, what is a story? A story, if you will, is an invitation, right? To imagine, to put yourself there, to enter the big story that this holy book is talking about, what God's doing on the world. So every, in the world, every time we read a story in the scriptures, it's an invitation. It's significance. It's hope, which is why Paul, writing in Romans 15 about the great stories in the Old Testament, he said such things, these stories were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. They give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises. The second thing I want to say is this is a story, and it's a a love story. The second to the last line of this story reads, And Rebekah married Isaac, and Isaac loved her. Now, in a word, what is that? Hallmark, it's a good story. It's a happy ending. And uh, the third thing I want to say is it's a long story. It's the longest story in Genesis, 67 verses, and almost all of it is conversation and dialogue. And it's this like people in uh, ordinary parts of their lives having these conversations, and through these conversations, God, in an extraordinary way, carries out his rule and his reign through the everyday conversations of his people. It's a story. It's a love story. It's a long story. But in this story, we learn what it means to live with God. And so what I'd like to do is go through this story scene by scene. The first scene is the first nine verses of the the story is about Abraham. And what we're going to learn about Abraham learning to live with God is its participation. 
we are going to learn that life with God is participation with God in the big story. The second scene is going to be about the servant. And what we're going to see the servant doing is talking to and about God all the time. He has these conversations with God that are absolutely amazing. And so we're going to learn that life with God is participation in the big story with him. It's conversations with God as we live out the story. And then thirdly, we're going to see in Rebecca that what it means to live with God is risk and courage and radical response to the dare of God. So are you ready? Scene one, scene two, scene three. Scene one is Abraham. Let's paint the background what's happening. The, the story starts with the verse saying, and it's, you know, it's the Bible saying this. The Bible can be so like stark and true sometimes. Abraham was old and advanced. Now, I don't know what the difference is. But he's old and advanced in years. And then it goes on to say his son Isaac, who would now be 40 years old, is a bachelor. And you have this sense that there's tension. There is tension at the start. Let me unpack that tension a little bit. You go back about, um, let's see, 70 years before when Abraham and Sarah were living in their homeland. Abraham was 75 years old. God appeared into his life. We don't know if it was an audible voice or a dream or what it was, but God said, Abraham, I want you to leave your home and go to a land. I'm not going to tell you where it is. You just start that direction. When you get there, I'll let you know. We're reminded, right, that faith is belief in what we can't see. Abraham, go. And when you go, I am going to give you this land that I will tell you when you're there. And from you and Sarah... I will make an ancestry so great, it will be a nation. And from this nation, I, the Lord God, will show my life and my love to every other nation in the world. That's what I promise to do through you. So Abraham and Sarah, perhaps some of you have had some of these Abraham and Sarah moments in your life. You just pick up and go. You're not quite sure how it's going to work out, what's going to go, where even to go, but you go. And then time passes, and they have no children. And uh, we get to Genesis 15. Abraham gets antsy, and uh, he says to the Lord, Lord, this is taking so long. You promised. What about if you take my servant Eliezer? And most rabbis think that this Eliezer is the same guy we read about in Genesis 24, the head of his household. He says, why don't you take Eliezer and make him the son of the prophet, pro promise? And God says, No. In fact, I'm going to reaffirm my covenant to you with an ancient ceremony. And Abraham, it's at night, he falls into a deep sleep, and God takes himself, he tells Abraham, I want you to uh, take uh, animals and split them in half, cut them, because the word covenant, promise, is the word cut in Hebrew. You cut them, there's blood, which means it's a serious and sober and commitment moment, and God in the form of a fire pot walks through the halves of the animals. It's a huge symbol of commitment that God again makes to Abraham. But then 25 more years pass and still, no, it's a boy, nothing. 
we get to, and by the way, at this point, Abraham's now 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old. And we get to Genesis 18, where uh, the angel of the Lord, the text says, and we, we think that's Jesus Christ. He's on his way with some other angels to do business with a couple of cities you may have heard of named Sodom and Gomorrah. But on the way, they stop and they take the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah and they make this, Jesus makes this statement to Abraham with Sarah in the cooking tent right next door. By this time next year, you will have a son. And Sarah, when she hears this, she laughs. Ah! She says, I'm an old, worn-out woman. No way! She laughed. Well, I don't know what, six to nine months later, they're holding a baby, a boy. Do you know what they named him? Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means in Hebrew? Laughter. Itzak means laughter. Like God always, always has the last laugh. Well, 40 more years pass. So Abraham's around 140. Isaac is like Steve Carell and 40 years old and not married. Some of you will get that pop culture reference. Some of you won't. And there's tension. There's tension because Abraham's saying, wait, you said a nation. You said an ancestry. Where's my grandchildren? He's 40 years old. Most Hebrew men married before they were 20. So Abraham takes action. So that's the story to this point. Intermission, intermission. Let's evaluate. God makes the promise. He's in charge. But Abraham says, I need to take action on this promise. Abraham says, and, and here's, don't just stand there. Do something. Do something. So, you know, he calls the servant. He says, uh, I want you to take this trip. You're going to go back to my homeland, 400-mile journey. Um, what I, here are two things. The non-negotiables are these. First, you... Uh, cannot allow Isaac to go back there with you because he's now in the promised land. If he goes back there and marries, he'll never come back to the promised land. So Isaac stays, second non-negotiable. You will find a woman from my tribe because if Isaac ends up marrying a woman here in Canaan, nine times out of ten, you know, when you get married, you choose the other faith. And we can't have Isaac lose his faith. So this has got to happen. You've got to go to this group of complete strangers that we haven't seen in many, many decades, and you've got to find a wife and bring her. She's got to be willing to come and, sight unseen, marry Isaac and live uh, all this way away. And so he takes off. Now, that action of Abraham is his taking action. You know, there are those who say, when it comes to life with God, that God helps those who helps themselves. That's in the Bible, by the way, Benjamin Franklin's Bible. But God helps those who helps themselves. And then there's other times and there's other people who say, no, let go. Let God. God's got this. So just watch him work. And the question is, which way do we go? 
Do we, God made promise, do we take action? Or God made promise, let's just wait and see. The answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. I know there's sometimes, like Abraham, we need to take action. And I think the word of the Lord for some of you in this room for your Monday morning journey has to be, you need to step up. You need to do it. You know what you need to do. And God's been prompting you. He's been talking to you and he's been giving counsel through your friends. And it's time for you. God's made his promises, but you need to get busy. You need to take action. Do you know what it's called? There's a theological term for this. It's called providence. Now, providence is this same energy that that when God created the world, he spoke things into existence. He created out of nothing through this divine energy that made everything that Lao lives come into existence. But providence is this same divine energy that is still keeping things alive, directing the flow of history in every moment, and pushing all things to its intended end, the end of the age, when the next thing big that's going to happen from God is when Jesus comes back. God is in complete control. He has energy. He is working all things to accomplish his will. But here's the thing. The primary way that he's working to accomplish his purposes and bring everything to that moment is through the means of his plan. And do you know what the means are? You and me, we're the means. We're the ones unfolding his plan. He is working through us. And so in small groups, we're going to have you discuss this week this idea of, you know, God is sovereign and in complete control. And human beings have free choice and they're able to make decisions. And so how do these things work together? And it's this mystery, a large part of it. But there's parts of it that I think we can understand. It's, it's like this, a picture of a ship, right? The Queen Elizabeth II. And it leaves the port of harbor in New York and travels to London. What's going on there? Well, on the one hand, you have authorities plotting the course, studying the wind patterns, everything they need to know to make this journey uh, effective and accomplished. There are authorities that people on the boat know nothing about, and these authorities are the ones who are directing the course and the only ones who can change the course. But on the boat are human beings who on this boat, what do we do? We read, we talk, we eat, we rest, we sleep, we do all the things of our normal lives. So we have this human activity going on in this huge context of uh, an authority who's controlling everything. That's what it's like to live with God. He makes promises. He is in control. They will happen. But he uses means with names, your name, my name, to accomplish his purposes. So that's scene one, partnership with God. Means that he is the one across the street watching us walk on the way to the office. Scene two, the servant. The servant uh, charged by Abraham, he uh, has this plan that he concocts. And I want to read it again. It's in chapter 24, verses 10 through 14. Then the servant left taking with him 10 of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Nahariam and made his way to the town of Nahor. That's Abraham's hometown. 
he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. Now, as I was studying this, and you know, one of the things as you study the word, you're always making observations and asking why questions. I would ask, why was that necessary to put in the story? I mean, camels kneel down. Well, the rabbis say that the word for kneel is a homonym for the word bless. And so the rabbis had this statement that when you kneel, you are blessed. Even camels, I guess. They kneeled down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming to draw water. May it be when I say to a young woman, please let your jar down that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. A couple of thoughts here as we think about the servant and these conversations with God. First, the servant is a smart guy because he knows that if this is going to work, this woman, we, you know, we see the end of the story, Rebecca, is going to have to love these creatures with long eyelashes and dopey eyes and bushy eyebrows and humps. If they're going to make it to the 50th wedding anniversary, living as a nomad and where Abraham lives, she's going to have to like camels. Let's start there. Then he has, <laughs> the servant concocts this uh, plan. And what you see through the rest of the story, and he tells and retells this story, is that 19 times in the narrative, mostly on the lips of the servant, he says the covenant name of the Lord, Lord, Yahweh, in all caps, Lord, 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 Lord. He is, throughout the narrative, either talking to God in scenarios like this, or he's talking about what God is doing. It reminded me of a story that I read in da Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, a couple years ago, about a missionary named Frank Laubach. In 1930, Frank Laubach was serving in a very obscure place in the Philippines, but in his journal, he decided that year for one of his resolutions that he would try to live conscious of God as much as he could in his waking hours. He tried to come up with this habit of saying the name of Jesus every minute. Can you imagine? Every minute. Now he journals that it was mixed success around all this. But here's what he said as he attempted this spiritual practice. He wrote in his journey, uh, journal, after only four weeks, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I've never felt this way before. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. You see, what the conversation this servant models for us is, is bringing God into the moments of our lives, and in that experience of just saying his name, we sense partnership. We sense that God is with us. He's across the street watching us walk to work. He is with us. 
That's the power of conversation, bringing the Lord's name to our consciousness again and again and again. So I don't know what this means for you, and I'm not about to get up here and you know, try to say that's what we should try to do, but I do want to ask you this. How often do you bring the Lord, his name, Jesus' name, into your daily consciousness? Wrestle with that this week, and even more, try to bring him to your mind more and more. He is with you on the Monday morning journeys. But I think the other thing, more than just his presence and power, I think there's something more in these conversations that the servant has. He's just, what, what stands out is just this familiarity with God that he has. And that's how we become more knowing of God as well. We have conversations with him. I remember reading a book a few years back, and um, in it was this story about a group of young married men, like within a year of being married, sitting in a circle, and in that circle was kind of an old seasoned veteran of marriage. And one of the young married husbands was just like frustrated because even that morning he'd had a little uh, spat with his wife and they were talking again about something in the relationship that the, the young husband said, we talked about this last week and we settled it. Why do we have to talk about it again? And he goes on. I mean, he had the floor. So he says, you know, why can't we just talk about something, fix it, and coast for six months, and then have another revisit? Why do we constantly have to talk about the relationship? The seasoned married veteran said, if you want to make it to year two, what you have to learn is that these conversations are not just about the relationship. They are the relationship. We need to learn that with God. I think so often our praying life is, Lord, I need this. Lord, do that. Lord, help me accomplish this today. And I think what the, the calling of some of this is, can we not just talk to God just to have conversation. The conversation is the relationship. So we see that life with God is about a promise he's made, but he's using us to bring it. Don't just stand there, do something. But the servant shows us that sometimes in life, the calling is don't just do something, sit there and pray. And then... There's Rebecca, and this scene is about risk. Rebecca in Hebrew is Rivka, and I don't know, I just like saying Rivka better. Rivka. She's probably 15, 16 years old. What happens is in that day, in ancient Hebrew culture, it was the young women, teenagers, who would carry water for the house in the village, she just happened to be going through her ordinary uh, routines of the day, getting water. But a little something about the character of Rivka. Because, you know, we said she liked camels, right? I did some research on camels. First of all, do you know that a camel can go four to five days in the desert without water? That's, you probably would have guessed that, but that, that's, wow. The reason is because their red blood cells are oval-shaped, 
And so even when they're dehydrated, they don't lose the flow of blood. They're amazing animals. But when they are dehydrated and thirsty, a camel can drink 20 gallons of water in 10 minutes. Times how many camels? 10. So how many gallons of water did Rebecca fill the trough with? Did you do the math? 200 gallons of water. To be precise in Hebrew, 273 firkins of water she carried. That's Rivka. So all this in her ordinary life, the extraordinary enters, the servant has been watching her, he comes up, tells her the story, hey, I come from a land 400 miles away, but my master's from your people, and the servant tells her the whole story. She's like, whoa, wow. She says, we need to go talk to my parents. So they go back, and out comes, uh, I don't know if her parents were there, but this dude we're going to meet in two weeks when we talk about Jacob, Rivka's brother named Laban. And initially Laban hears the story and he's like, wow, this is more than coincidence. This is the Lord, he says. But then Laban is a scoundrel. And so what happens is he sleeps on it for a night and the gifts they got the night before, he's thinking, we can do better. And he says, let's just call a timeout and let's take a 10-day moratorium. And I think he's, scholars think he's angling for more. And the servant of Abraham says, no, I've got to go back to my servant Abraham. And Laban, I think, puts his cards on the table thinking when he says, well, let's bring in Rivka and see what she wants. Laban thinks that she's got character like he has and that she's going to be on his side and says, yeah, let's get more. They put the question to Rivka. Will you leave your family? Will you travel 400 miles to a whole different culture and place? And will you marry a man you've never seen before? And by the way, he's 40 years old. Will you? And Rivka says, I will go. And in those three words, you and me are here. Because you know, right, that Isaac and Rivka, into their Monday morning journey comes infertility, and the promise is intention again, but they push through, they endure, and finally Rivka has these twins named Esau and Jacob. Jacob steals the birthright, becomes the firstborn. In two weeks, we're going to talk about how he wrestles with Jesus, and then his name is changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and from these 12 sons come a nation who will be life and light to the world, but mainly they will be the, the, the nation that brings into the world the king. Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah, one of uh, Israel's sons. It's in those three words, when Rivka says, I will go, that the promise is brought to us. Last week, I came across a story in my, one of my files about an elder in Pittsburgh. And it was one of those days in Pennsylvania um, when it's drizzling all day and then the bottom drops out of the temperature and at night, the roads and everything becomes covered in sheets of ice. 
Well, this elder gets a call from his pastor, and the pastor says, there's this family in church, their seven-year-old son who has leukemia, his fever is spiking, and it doesn't look good. Would you be able to get to this family and get them to the hospital? Why? Because, why the elder? Because the pastor's car is in the shop, the family doesn't have a car, and there's no ambulances running because of the ice. So this elder says, I'll go. Gets in a car, this family lived about four blocks away, and just to get to pick up the family, he has to use three stationary objects to stop his car. Gets the family in the car, the seven-year-old on the mom's lap in the front passenger seat, the dad in the back. They come to an intersection, and the elder, who has, by the way, been praying, Lord, Lord, has to make a decision in the moment. Do I go up this hill if we can make it up and have a slower descent down into the hospital area? Or do I take a right turn here and in Pittsburgh, there's these drops into the city. Do I, we just sled down the hill not knowing how we're gonna stop? What do we do? Lord, in that moment, this elder looks over at the seven-year-old, sees his eyes wide with fear and fever and his flushed face. He decides in the moment just to touch his forehead. And the boy says to the elder, Mr., are you Jesus? And what we're saying this morning is that if you're just going to piddle around in your life and not be willing in the daily moments that are brought to us when God's asking us, will you, will you, I dare you, will you go? If we're not willing to say in those moments, I will go, we will never experience moments like that. So I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know why Jesus brought you. I don't know why you're watching online. But I hope that it was something to hear about this life with God that we have, that it's a partnership and that he's with us making promises but using us to fulfill that promise of Jesus to the world. And then conversation, conversation, conversation with Jesus all the time, but especially these moments, and we'll know them when they come, when God asks us to do something big, something daring. Are we the kind of church that will say, I will go? I'm suggesting to you that the greatest story on the planet right now is a love story, and it's been long, but it's that Jesus came to the world to get his family back. And he's using people like you and like me to carry that news. You, listen, are irreplaceable in the full telling of this story. Will you? Will you be a part of the story?